June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases. The time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that can enthrall you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped, like Amy Tintera's Listen for the Lie. With exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors, captivating sound design, and dynamic performances, Audible brings these stories to life like never before. And as a member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. When you first heard the word guilty, you thought what? Gratitude, um, humility, followed by a certain sense of, I'll say, satisfaction. Tonight, the prosecutors in the George Floyd murder trial tell us about the defendant, the jury we never saw, and the meaning of justice. You could have charged him with a hate crime under Minnesota law, and you chose not to. The U.S. and Russia have entered a treacherous phase. Diplomats being expelled, Russian troops at the Ukraine border, and a crackdown on protests over the treatment of Alexei Navalny, Vladimir Putin's main political rival, who's being held in a Russian prison. We last spoke to Navalny in October while he recovered from a near-fatal poisoning. You have said you think that Mr. Putin's responsible. I don't think I'm sure that he's responsible. It's been so long since the lights went out on Broadway and New York's other stages. In small steps, in this case many of them, the city's performers are beginning to play to grateful audiences again. Everyone desperate to get 100,000 people back to work full time. We've missed that connection. It's about connection, the human connection. 
I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm John Wertheim. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories and more tonight on 60 Minutes. Thanks to ADT, our presenting sponsor. I enjoy true crime podcasts as much as the next person, but I think we've all experienced losing sleep when an episode hits just a little too close to home. With ADT, get 24-7 peace of mind knowing that your home is protected by the most trusted name in home security. With nearly 150 years of experience, reliability, and safety innovations, ADT is a tried-and-true smart home security system that over 6 million Americans trust. Equipped with the latest technology and the intelligence of Google, ADT provides comprehensive protection that you can manage from virtually anywhere. Whether you opt for professional installation by ADT Pros or easily set it up yourself, customize your smart security system to work for your home and your routine. With Nest Cams and Doorbells, set up intelligent alerts so you receive notifications on what matters most. Your camera can tell the difference between a person, package, vehicle, and animal, and will alert you when there's activity. When the most trusted name in home security adds the intelligence of Google, you've got a home with no worries. Go to ADT.com today or call 1-800-ADT-ASAP. Google, Nest Cam, and Nest Doorbell are trademarks of Google LLC. ADT. Brilliantly safe. Derek Chauvin is in solitary confinement tonight, awaiting sentencing for the murder of George Floyd. The former Minneapolis police officer was convicted this past Tuesday. After the verdict, the prosecution team sat down with us, including lead prosecutor, Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison. When you first heard the word guilty, you thought what? Gratitude, um, humility, followed by a certain sense of, I'll say, satisfaction. It's what we were aiming for the whole time. I spent 16 years as a criminal defense lawyer, so I will admit I felt a little bad for the defendant. I think he deserved to be convicted, but he's a human being. Somehow, I did not expect to hear from you a note of compassion for Derek Chauvin. I'm not in any way wavering from my responsibility, but I hope we never forget that people who are defendants in our criminal justice system, that they're, they're, they're human beings, they're people. I mean, George Floyd was a human being. And so I'm not going to ever forget that everybody in this process is a person. Was there ever a time that you thought you could lose this case? I was never convinced we were going to win this case until we heard the verdicts of guilty. I remember what happened in the Rodney King case when I was a pretty young man, a young lawyer. And I remember how devastated I felt when I heard that the jury acquitted those officers. Whenever an officer is charged with an offense, particularly when the, the victim is a, is a person of color, it's just rare that there's any, any accountability. And so there was every moment of this case, I thought, what are we missing? What haven't we done? 57-year-old Keith Ellison represented Minneapolis in Congress. He became attorney general in 2019. In the Chauvin case, the governor passed over the local county attorney in favor of Ellison to give the prosecution independence. 
Ellison's team of 14 attorneys worked 11 months to explain nine minutes and 29 seconds. We never thought we could play the video and sit down. We always knew we had to put on a full case and act as if we didn't have a video. We made sure that the witnesses could carry it. There were 45 witnesses over three weeks, including the Minneapolis chief of police. It's not part of our training, and it is certainly not part of our ethics or our values. And a leading authority on the complexities of a simple breath. That's the moment the life goes out of his body. Which witness sealed this case for you? I think it was Mr. McMillan. You swear or affirm the penalty perjury? 61-year-old guy, didn't know George Floyd, and he came in there, and he cried on the witness stand. Charles McMillan was among those witnesses who could plainly see the humanity that never seemed to register in the eyes of Derek Chauvin. As you looked on the faces of the 12 jurors during the more difficult eyewitness testimony, what did you see in their faces? Jerry Blackwell and Steve Slisher presented the case. I saw a kind of empathy uh, in their faces that, that they could feel what the witnesses felt. Uh, they could feel the, the anguish. Uh, they could feel the pain. Uh, they saw the tears. The dozen jurors remain anonymous. Socially distanced from one another, they were never seen on camera. They were bright. Um, and they were taking their responsibilities very seriously. And you could see that throughout the entire trial. They were leaned forward, um, engaged. Taking notes, taking lots of notes. Furious, yeah, furiously taking notes. Several jurors had advanced degrees. One was a registered nurse. They were overwhelmingly under the age of 40, uh, which was unique. Half were white, half people of color. Two what I would call traditional African-Americans, you know, people like me. There were two African immigrants. There were uh, two um, folks who were uh, mixed race, who had, uh, I think, an African descendant parent and a white parent. And then the, the, the white jurors were very diverse, too. You know, some of them were working class. Others were very highly educated folks. Use your common sense. The identity of the jurors is one of two mysteries of the trial. The other is the motive for the murder. Was this a hate crime? I wouldn't call it that. Because hate crimes are crimes where there's an explicit motive and, uh, of bias. We don't have any evidence that Derek Chauvin factored in uh, George Floyd's race as he did what he did. You could have charged him with a hate crime under Minnesota law. Yeah. And you chose not to. Could have, um, but we only charged those crimes that we had evidence to, that we could put in front of a jury to prove. If we'd have had a witness that told us that Derek Chauvin made a racial reference, we might have charged him with a hate crime. But I would have needed a witness to say that on the stand. We didn't have it, so we didn't do it. The whole world sees this as a white officer killing a black man because he is black. And you're telling me that there's no evidence to support that. In our society, there is a social norm that killing certain kinds of people is more tolerable than other kinds of people. 
in order for us to stop and pay serious attention to this case and be outraged by it, it's not necessary that Derek Chauvin had specific racial in, intent uh, to harm George Floyd. The fact is, we know that through housing patterns, through employment, through wealth, through a whole range of other things, uh, so often people of color, black people, end up with uh, harsh treatment from law enforcement. Um, and other folks doing the exact same thing just don't. If an officer doesn't throw a white neurologist in Eden Prairie, Minnesota, to the ground and doesn't uh, uh, sit on top of his neck, is he doing it because this is a fellow white brother? No, he's doing it because he thinks this is an important person, and if I treat them badly, uh, somebody's going to ask me about this. This person probably has lawyers. They probably knows the governor. He probably knows he has connections. I can look at the way he's dressed and the way he talks that he's probably, quote, unquote, somebody. And so that's really what it's about. Why would this officer assault George Floyd? Well, that's a question we've spent a lot of time asking ourselves. And uh, all we could come up with is, what we could divine from his body language and his demeanor. And what we saw is that the crowd was demanding that he get up and that he was staring right back at them defiantly. You don't tell me what to do. I do what I want to do. You people have no control over me. I'm going to show you. And what he showed them, he showed to 13 video cameras. Could you one conviction without the bystander video? I don't know if it was just the witness's statements. I have to say to you that it was, I think it was an indispensable piece of this case. The first public statement that the Minneapolis Police Department made hours after Mr. Floyd was killed right. was that the police had been involved and someone had died of a medical emergency. Do you think we ever would have known the truth without the video? You know, I have real doubts of, that we ever would. Why would Derek Chauvin commit murder or even assault if he knew he was being recorded? I think that um, if he looks at history, he has every reason to believe that he would never be held accountable. There had never been anyone in Minnesota, convict, any police officer convicted of second-degree murder in the history of our state. So this was um, precedent-setting in that way. So history was on his side. Does George Floyd bear any responsibility, in your view, for what happened that day? No, he doesn't. Take a seat. I'm going to die, man. You need to take a seat right no. now. If he'd gotten in the car... He'd be alive today. The fact is, is that police officers are paid and trained to deal with people who are having problems. And if they're allowed to use deadly force on people who are just having a bad day, then, then we're going to be in a very, very lethal situation. We need officers who have the judgment and the ability to discern what somebody is going through so that people survive these encounters. George Floyd was not armed. He never threatened a soul. He never struck out on against anybody. He did everything the officer said, except he had claustrophobia and anxiety 
and couldn't bring himself to get in that car. How could Chauvin justify being on him three minutes after he had no pulse? How can he justify not rendering CPR? How can he justify not heeding George Floyd's 27 requests to be able to breathe? I can't breathe, he said 27 times. How can he just ignore that? So I'm hard-pressed to find how George Floyd uh, bears responsibility for what happened here. And if you look at the totality of the circumstances... Jerry Blackwell and Steve Slisher presented the closing arguments, but they're not career prosecutors. They were recruited by the attorney general from big law firms because of their talent. Both volunteered to work this case for free. It meant a lot to me personally. I mean, I, I have uh, had my own experiences of, uh, of being uh, stopped uh, by the police for no reason, being harassed for no reason, and I wanted to do my part just as a citizen to say uh, that the rule of law matters. What does this verdict change? Does it change anything? Well, we won't know, right? We're in the middle of history right now. And so that's yet to be seen. But the rest of it is really up to the world, whether it changes and what it changes, to what extent. We're in the middle of this story. I don't think that there are any inevitabilities in it because we don't make progress on the wheels of inevitability. In fact, I think progress rolls like a brick. And, uh, and so each one has to be flipped each time. So when people talk about inflection points and so on, um, I'm not really a subscriber to inflection points. There's no reason to believe that things are easier going forward than they were to get here. And I think we have to make a consistent effort every day to protect the vulnerable, and then to work to reform ourselves, which if we don't do, there won't be any lasting change anyway, if each person doesn't work to make the change. Three other former officers will go on trial together in August. 45-year-old Derek Chauvin will be sentenced by the judge in mid-June. George Floyd's family can make a statement at that hearing, and so could Chauvin, if he chooses. He faces a maximum of 40 years. A maximum sentence? would send what kind of message? I think it is important for the court to not go light or heavy. I don't know if it's right for a judge to send a message through a sentence because the sentence should be tailored to the offense, tailored to the circumstances of the case. Look, the state never wanted revenge against Derek Chauvin. We just wanted accountability. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Russian President Vladimir Putin's political opposition has taken to the streets once again in cities across the country. They were ignited by the imprisonment of opposition leader Alexei Navalny, 
who was said to be near death in the prison infirmary, partly the result of a 24-day hunger strike, which he ended Friday. Last month, President Biden announced new sanctions against Russia for incarcerating Navalny, who has become an international symbol of freedom in an increasingly autocratic country. Navalny was taken into custody as he returned to Russia in January after treatment in Germany for a near-fatal poisoning. We spoke last fall in Berlin as he recovered. And as we reported then, he told us he was aboard a flight from Siberia to Moscow when he began to feel very sick. I said to the flight attendant, and I kind of shocked him with my statement, uh, well, I was poisoned, and I'm going to die. And I immediately lay down uh, under his feet. Alexei Navalny was on a flight to Moscow from Siberia, where he'd been campaigning against Putin's party in a local election when he collapsed with no pain but knowing he was dying. Actually, every cell of your body just telling you, that's body, we are done. One of the other passengers turned on his phone and captured Navalny moaning in anguish. The pilot made an emergency landing in Omsk, where medics, thinking Navalny must be a drug addict, administered the usual treatment for an overdose and rushed him to a local hospital, where they said he wasn't poisoned, but wouldn't let him leave for days. Well, it was a big fight, and they thought that after 48 hours, these these poison would be untraceable. And uh, they just keep me there until this 48 hours will be gone. Navalny is under constant surveillance. His wife, Yulia, says government agents were at the hospital controlling access to her husband and, she believes, calling the shots. At the time, Navalny was in a coma, unaware that his wife, Yulia, was waging a public campaign to encourage Western diplomatic pressure and... Did you write a letter to Putin? Yeah, I did it. Dear Mr. Putin, free my husband. I wrote, like, I insist that he should do it. I demand you free my husband. Yeah. It was an online campaign, let him out, and Putin thought it would be safe for him. uh, Just let me out after uh, 48 hours. So, after 48 hours, the Russian government allowed him to be flown by air ambulance to a hospital in Berlin known for its experience with victims of poison attacks. And I gather they suspected poison right away? Uh, Yes, of course. Meanwhile, his team in Siberia searched his hotel room, collecting things Navalny may have touched, like this water bottle which the doctors in Berlin sent along with a blood sample to a German military lab to see exactly what the poison was. And the answer was Novichok. They discovered Novichok, this nerve agent, uh, in my blood, in, inside of body, on my body, and all this bottle from the hotel. So uh, that's why we now we know that I was poisoned in the hotel, because... I, uh, well, it's, uh, again, it's just a pure speculation because no one knows what, what, what happened exactly. But I think that when I was uh, maybe put some clothes with this, um, with this poison on me, I touch it with the hand and then I sip from the bottle. So this nerve agent was not inside of a bottle, but on the bottle. Novichok is a highly toxic nerve agent said to be 10 times more potent than sarin gas 
Labs in France and Sweden corroborated the finding. There's no doubt it was military-grade Novichok. It's maybe the most toxic uh, agent invented by the uh, humans. So it's a new type of Novichok, which prove that, unfortunately, Putin have a developing new program of this chemical weapon, which is forbidden. The Russians have said that they destroyed all these chemical weapons. That's why, actually, they deny everything, because it means that they still have this Novichok. So it means they're not just violating with the keeping it. They are uh, continue to improve it. And so, there's uh, no doubt that Russia is the only place that where that could have come from. This is absolutely correct. It's a banned substance. It's a banned substance. I think for Putin, uh, why he's using this chemical weapon to do, do both, kill me and, you know, terrify others. It's something really scary. With the people just drop dead without... There are no guns, there are no shots, and in a couple of hours you will be dead and without any traces on your body. It's something terrifying, and Putin is enjoying it. You have said you think that Mr. Putin's responsible. I don't think. I'm sure that he's responsible. Putin's spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, says the charge is completely baseless and unacceptable. But Angela Merkel of Germany and Emmanuel Macron of France have persuaded the European Union to impose sanctions over this. Well, all these leaders have signed on except Donald Trump. Yes, I I have noticed it. (laughs) Is it important to you that he condemn this action? So um, I think it's extremely important uh, that everyone of course, including and maybe in the first row president of the United States to be very against using chemical weapon in the 21st century. But why would Putin want to poison Alexei Navalny? When we first met Navalny three years ago, he was running against Putin for president. He had made a name for himself by getting his hands on incriminating internal financial documents related to high-level officials and posting them on a blog. Did these documents that you got prove corruption? Uh, Absolutely. I work as a whistleblower, and I'm not afraid to uh, announce the names. He says he found that the Kremlin's inner circle was accumulating vast amounts of wealth and published pictures of multiple homes and yachts. He moved on to airing documentaries on YouTube with video of the officials' lavish lifestyle. And uh, it's... uh, It's something very special about Mr. Putin, that he's crazy about money, personal money, about his family being rich, his friends, like all his people who was served with him in the KGB. All of them, they are billionaires. That's why fighting corruption means for him that he's fighting me. You know, I'm smiling because here you are. You have survived the most potent nerve agent there is. And you are as fiery and worked up about, your, about Putin and what's going on in this country as you were when I met you a couple of years ago. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad that I survived. And His blog inflamed so much outrage in 2017 that tens of thousands of Russians took to the streets against Putin. When Navalny called for a second round of protests three months later, He was arrested before he even left his apartment building. He's been jailed so many times he's lost count. He's been beaten, 
had green dye with acid splashed in his face, and now he can add poisoning to his resume and blame President Putin. Well, how can you say that? Why wouldn't it be one of the oligarchs whom you've embarrassed by, as you say, exposing their corruption? Even for an oligarch, it's impossible to get this Novichok. It's not something you can buy in the store, even if you have a millions of the billions of dollars. Maybe more important, you cannot use it. You will kill yourself and everyone around uh, because it's very difficult to, you know, contain it. it. Yes. Yeah. And uh, then this huge cover-up operation, there is no criminal investigation so far. If, if Putin is not responsible, why there is no investigation? And uh, look what they're doing right now. Like uh, Putin with a conversation with the French President Macron, mm-hmm. he said, well, Navalny poisoned himself. Seriously. Mr. Putin told the president of France that you poisoned yourself? Yes, it was just to, you know, annoy him. (laughs) Putin is contending with rounds of protests in the far eastern part of the country, with people taking to the streets for the past three months. Navalny thinks the attempt on his life is connected. Despite his controlling police, judges, courts, media and everything, Still, he's uh, like uh, he understands that he's surrounded by protests, and it's increasing. So that's why his uh, they decided to, you know, ex- for extreme measures. This is what he looked like just a month ago, soon after his doctors brought him out of an induced coma, rail thin with a sickly pallor. This photo was taken the first day he saw his children after being taken off a ventilator. So you were in a coma. And then you woke up. And what happened? After this coma, I just jumped to the long period of kind of crazy hallucinations and several, you know, steps of uh, realizing where I am, who I am. And uh, I could not speak and I could not write. How has this affected your family? Well, it was a, it was a difficult situation, but they stand it. and uh, Including did great. your children? Including your, children. Your son is 12 and your daughter is in college. Right. Those are tough ages to realize that your father well, came close they, to being assassinated. Did they say to you, Pop, Dad, you have to stop? Absolutely not. No, um, absolutely not. My, I, I'm very lucky man because I have all support from my family. You'd almost have to at this point. Yeah. Navalny, his wife, his bodyguard, and I went out for a walk in front of the Brandenburg Gate in Berlin, and a phalanx of police showed up. So you, you certainly travel with a lot of protection. Yes, I have a lot of security. But... He's under the protection of the German government because there's concern he could be the target of another poisoning. And yet, he said he's determined to return to Moscow in a couple of months as soon as he's 100% and resume his work where he left off, campaigning against Vladimir Putin. You know, you used to be known as the man who had no fear. But what about your family? Do you ever think uh, that you were putting them in danger? That is the toughest part, yes. I don't feel any fear, but children. What is kind of really horrible thought if they will try to use this Novichok somewhere around my apartment, mm-hmm. where my mm-hmm. children is coming, like, wow. you know, this door or something, where everyone can touch it. But 
Anyway, we should fight these people because they will never stop. They will poison someone else. They will poison more people. Well, how do you feel now? Are you back, totally back? You seem to be. I still need some time to recover, and I'm working on it. But you do go to rehab. Do you go every day? Yes. To learn from the scratch how to, how to move, how to do some things. They're interesting that um, I feel kind of a bit of a wooden or a tin man, like from the Wizard of Oz, because the body lost all flexibility at all. Interesting how it's work. I have no idea. It's, now it's uh, uh, difficult movies for me, for, for example, pick something from the ground. What about the psychological effect of having, knowing that somebody tried to kill you, came uh, that close? You know, uh, I think it's a, it's a good thing. It's very useful for politicians maybe facing that once. Because it's changed you a bit. So maybe, ironically, I became kind of more human after these facing deaths. The Biden administration's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, on CNN last Sunday, warned the Kremlin of consequences if Alexei Navalny dies in custody. Giving new zest to the term showstopper, the pandemic sure did a number on the performing arts, and just when we needed them most. Live music, dance, and theater help us to process collective trauma, to make sense of loss and fear. But the same intimacy and shared experience that make the performing arts so special have made them singularly awful for COVID times. There is an economic toll to putting the performing arts on mute especially in New York, where they bring in billions and where Broadway alone sells more tickets than all the city's pro sports teams combined. But what about the loss in value that can't be measured? As show business reimagines its role post-COVID in the city that never sleeps, we consulted three dazzling talents at the top of their games, doing their best to improvise. Meet Ayadele Cassell. Originally from the Bronx, she's danced her way onto the biggest stages in the world. Here she is at New York's Joyce Theater performing for an online audience. Tap dancing is, to me, a genius musical way of moving one's feet and body. It's expression, it's joy, it's resistance. I think it's magical. What's it like without an audience? I mean, how does that compare to the real thing? Well, it doesn't compare to the real thing. <laughs> Next, allow us to introduce Anthony Roth Costanza, a countertenor whose talent is matched by his range. Up until the pandemic, he was starring in the Metropolitan Opera's sold-out production of Akhenaten. I was biking by the Met the other day, and I stopped my bike and I closed my eyes and I thought, what does it smell like on that stage? What does it feel like? Can you remember? It is such an incredible feeling, stepping onto the stage of the Met, looking out at 3,800 people. And finally, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, Nathan Lane. We asked the veteran Broadway actor how he stayed limber during the pandemic. I, I haven't. I'm, I'm, I'm like everyone. I'm, I'm sitting home watching Netflix, watching Money Heist, 
thinking, wow, it's so Spanish. Everyone, it's like a telenovela during a big heist. It's crazy, but it's so uh, addictive. I love Netflix, but, you know, enough is enough. And we've missed that connection. It's about connection, the human connection. That connection between performer and audience stopped cold here last March 12th, back when COVID was still in Act One. And it hasn't resumed. Those neon lights on Broadway? Still out. Practice all you want, you can't get to Carnegie Hall. For more than a year now, there's been no business in show business. Devastating to the nearly 100,000 New Yorkers who make their living this way. On stage, backstage, in front of house. Adam Krauthammer heads the city's union of 7,000 musicians. What's the unemployment rate among your members right now? So right now it's 95%. Unemployment? 95% unemployment. I think for people who work in the arts, we were worried that we were losing jobs, right? But my, my fear is that we were losing careers. Did you see that firsthand? I've had members sell their homes. I've had members sell instruments. There is precedent for helping artists in times of crisis. Coming out of the Great Depression, part of the New Deal funded projects in music, theater, and art. In this crisis, performers have largely had to go it alone. This in an industry not exactly known for a stable business model. Even in the best of times, a show won't break even unless audiences fill at least 80% of the seats. How many performances have canceled for you since the start of COVID? I would say at least 100, if not 150. I mean, the check stopped. And um, you, you saw quite a stark contrast between selling out in a title role at the Met and being on unemployment just a matter of months later. Ayadeli Cassell also worried her career would lose momentum permanently. What happened? Silence happened. <laughs> um, actually, worse than silence, it was the, the phone call saying, you know, we, we're canceling, we're canceling, we're canceling. This is income too, I'm guessing. This is 30, 35, 40, $45,000 getting canceled. You know, that might not be a lot for other folks, but like for an artist, that's a lot of money to go out the window. And it almost took me down. I, for a quick second, thought maybe I've had a good run. You went to that spot. Oh, I went to, the, oh, yeah. There was like a good month or two where I was just like, I think seriously considering not, not doing this in this way anymore. And just when I thought that, I get the call for, you know, to do New York Pops Up. A creative plan for the creative class. New York Pops Up, the state program backed by $6 million, is a sort of cultural band-aid aimed at reminding the public about the importance and joy of live arts. Like a pop-up store, the arts version is temporary, mobile, and socially distant. With an eclectic mix of performers emerging in unlikely places. The sanitized setting for opening day in February, Manhattan's big convention facility. A thank you to those overseeing vaccinations. It was surreal. I'm not going to lie. It was so surreal. Because when I, it's like, I remember when I stepped on stage. How are you doing, New York City? There was that moment of like, you know, applause. I'm so happy 
to share my heart and my art with you. There's there's nothing like it. I just felt like, oh, we're back. <laughs> you know, just like that. After the stage show, John Batiste, musician and band leader of CBS's The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, Pied Piper the ragtag troupe through the streets of Brooklyn. You have this delicate instrument, and then you've got a bullhorn rendering it. <laughs> We're over being precious with opera or even these instruments. I think it's about, now it's about the kind of fervor that exists. And after all, opera singing is just glorified screaming, so. My people! In March, Ayadele Cassell got some rehearsal time with fellow dancers. <laughs> Albeit in the frigid garage of her New Jersey home. I... Hadn't seen my friends in so long. I could cry thinking about it. <laughs> but um, I, I think I underestimated, you know, um, how much I had missed them, you know, because we would stay in touch over the phone, but it's one thing to then be in the same space. That was uh, really inspiring to me. That was awesome. <laughs> she took the show on the road with New York Pops Up and went back to her old stomping grounds in the Bronx as well as Brooklyn and Queens, turning up in museum lobbies to the happy surprise of visitors. Since then, New York has loosened some restrictions on live performance. Audiences of up to 150 people can now gather indoors. And cultural institutions are trying to figure out how to make this work. We were there when the New York Philharmonic was reunited for the first time in a year with its conductor, Japman Sweden. A smaller orchestra, socially distanced and masked, rehearsed for a virtual concert. Being a musician is not, a, with all respect, it's not a job. It is something you live for all your life. And if that is being taken away, uh, that is not easy for us. And so we are extremely happy that we can be back on stage. But pop-ups and streaming gigs are baby steps back to work for only a fraction of New York's performing artists. The larger question looms, when can theaters safely pack them in again? Yeah, they'll double-check that right there when they take your temperature, then you can head on inside. Thank you. In early April, the venerable St. James Theater was the site of Broadway's soft reopen. The audience, proof of negative COVID tests required, sat apart yet together, one day only. Okay. I know, cabin fever, COVID brain, whatever. But to watch Nathan Lane on a bare-bones set. He performed a monologue about, fittingly, a theater lover exiled from Broadway. I go on every theater website and defend every version of Merrily We Roll Along. Because at least it's an attempt. Was there a special protocol you had to go through as a performer today? Special COVID protocol? Yes, they hosed me down. <laughs> they, I've, been tested, I've been tested so many times. Were there moments today when you were up there and you sort of said, you know what, this, all right. No, I was, I, I'll tell you honestly, I was, I was like terrified. Why? Well, because it, there wasn't any real rehearsal. There was a first performance <laughs> To, to the, uh, now, if you catch me tomorrow night, <laughs> you want to come by the house, I'll try to get. In her lost year, Ayadele Cassell, like so many artists, has been thinking about not just how to bounce back, but about how to lunge forward. 
I would like to see what gets presented from here on in to reflect what artists look like out in the world, that there are more black people and more Latino people and more Asian people being represented um, creatively, not just on stage, but just everywhere around and behind and in front and in back, just all over. <laughs> Anthony Roth Costanzo has used his quiet period to make an album, a style mashup with cabaret singer Justin Vivian Bond. And it's also got him thinking he may not want to go back to the way things were. We've decimated the arts, and we have an opportunity to rebuild them. Open doors, literally. Literally. And not only open doors, to rebuild the doorway and install a new door. Specifically, what are we talking about? Let's reinvent the concert-going ritual. Let's put it on a pickup truck and take it places, go out of the concert hall, out of the opera house, and create new experiences. As Broadway fashions its restaging, there's already been a spasm of, well, drama. On Thursday, the theater community rallied to demand accountability. They targeted producer Scott Rudin, a Broadway mogul and force behind New York Pops Up, who announced he was stepping back after reports of abusive behavior. But the show must, of course, go on. And Nathan Lane has one small note. Anything you'd like to see not come back? Cats. Cats. We don't need cats. <laughs> Enough with cats. They revived it. We, we, you know, we get the idea. Cats. Cats notwithstanding, Broadway and New York's main stages are heading for a fall reopening. There's no precise date on the calendar, and shows will need time to ramp up. There will be some light bulbs to change and some sets to dust off, and perhaps a new appreciation, not just for the dollars and cents, but for the spiritual value in the performing arts. It's more than just a, a night out. <laughs> it's, a, you know, it's what the character says in the piece. I love theater. I can't explain it. It's just when I have tickets to a show, it lifts my whole day. It's like a date with someone who might be wonderful. Or might be boring. Or might change my life forever. You know? I know. So what's... Uh, I thought that for sure was the end of the interview. Didn't you? Didn't I, didn't I give him, like, the best ending to this thing? Let's talk about my mochi ice cream. Why? Because friends do not let friends miss out on something this good. My mochi is premium ice cream wrapped in sweet soft dough, and the flavors are amazing. Like my mochi double chocolate with rich chocolatey bits, it's a chocolate lover's dream. Or don't get me started on my mochi strawberry ice cream. It's cool, creamy, and bursting with natural berry flavor. And the sweet, luscious flavor of my mochi mango will send your taste buds straight to the tropics. My mochi is gluten-free, perfectly portioned, and only around 90 calories per piece. Taste the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream today. Find My Mochi at Walmart or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. Next Sunday on 60 Minutes, The Premonition. Writer Michael Lewis has chronicled the insights of people with fresh ways of looking at familiar things. At baseball, Wall Street, college football, and finance. John Dickerson talks with Michael Lewis about the doctors and scientists who saw the COVID-19 pandemic coming and their frantic 
and ultimately futile attempts to sound the alarm. I'm Leslie Stahl. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. Are you a fan of 60 Minutes? You can represent the most watched series on television with shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and more at ParamountShop.com. You can take 20% off with code MINUTES20. That's 20% off at checkout on all 60 Minutes products with code MINUTES20 at ParamountShop.com. Hey, everybody. John Stewart here. I am here to tell you about my new podcast, The Weekly Show. It's going to be coming out every Thursday. So exciting. You'll, you'll be saying to yourself, TGIT. Thank God it's Thursday. We're going to be talking about all the things that hopefully obsess you in the same way that they obsess me. The election, economics, earnings calls. What are they talking about on these earnings calls? We're going to be talking about ingredient to bread ratio on sandwiches. And I know that I listed that fourth, but in importance, it's probably second. I know you have a lot of options as far as podcasts go, but how many of them come out on Thursday? I mean, talk about innovative. Listen to The Weekly Show with Jon Stewart wherever you get your podcasts. Always on the go? Well, now you can take CBS Mornings with you. Wake up to your daily dose of news and interviews on CBS Mornings On The Go. It's a podcast you can listen to CBS Mornings On The Go ad-free on Wondery+. Plus.